Hello and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I'm Charles Hughes Huff from St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry, and I'm going to be talking today to Joseph Gordon about his book, Divine Scripture and Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. In this book, Joe Gordon seeks to address insights about biblical studies from historical critical scholars, from patristics and Christian theologians, and from postmodern scholars to do so by presenting a systematic theology of what the Bible is. His two main interlocutors are Henri de Lubac and Bernard Lonergan, both Jesuits, both working in different parts of the world in the 20th century. Gordon brings their ideas together with a wide-ranging scope of interests and theoretical writing. Gordon brings these two together with a broad range of interests and insights of his own and covers a lot of ground in this book. It's an exciting book. So without further ado, we welcome today Joe Gordon. All right, so Joe, I just wanted to uh, start by asking you for the listeners of our podcast a little bit about yourself, where you're from. Where are you teaching now? Uh, where did you study? And then how did you decide? I, for my first book project, I'm going to write a systematic theology of the Christian Bible. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Charles. I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, and came into the church in middle school and high school. I felt a call tug on my heart to vocational ministry. And in my church tradition, which is the Christian churches and Church of Christ, folks who have that experience, they go to Bible college. Yeah, so I went to Johnson Bible College. Going into it, I had this idea. A lot of people had gotten scripture wrong. It seemed mm -hmm. quite obvious to me. Um, and I was going to put a stop to that. Naive kind of a thing that only an 18-year-old could think. Um, but I came to Johnson and took courses on most of the books of scripture, Protestant canon, took the biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew. And it uh, was a profound, formative experience for me. And it taught me very quickly that despite having memorized quite a bit of scripture, uh, I knew very little about it, but I learned. And um, when it came time for me to decide what to do afterwards uh, through a number of different factors, I had some professors kind of pointing me towards seminary to continue my education um, towards a different kind of ministry, ministry of teaching, helping to prepare other people for Christian ministry, Christian service. And uh, I left biblical studies at that point into theology, uh, because even though I value and still so value that work I had in the languages and, and all those courses covering the, the various books, various genres of scripture, I still had pressing theological questions, uh, even more now, uh, now that I was studying scripture in, in a historical way and, and engaging the history of its transmission and reception. And so I did a, a Master's of Divinity in another school in the Christian Church tradition at Lincoln Christian Seminary mm. uh, with a focus on contemporary Christian theology. Uh, there I had professors who had studied from a variety of other places. I had a few professors who studied with Anglicans, uh, mm -hmm. some who studied with Roman Catholic thinkers. Uh, one of my most influential professors, did his PhD at Boston College. I also had professors from the broader sort of evangelical world and just from a variety of different Christian backgrounds. The professor from Boston College, his name is Steve Cohn. Uh, he still teaches at Lincoln. Uh, he actually introduced me to two 20th century Jesuit thinkers, mm -hmm. Bernard Lonergan, Canadian Jesuit, and uh, Henri de Lubac, French Jesuit. So I still had all these questions about 
what scripture is and how to interpret it. And uh, I wanted to write a thesis on Karl Barth's theological exegesis. He recovered a way of approaching scripture theologically in the 20th century, and I wanted to explore that. And Steve pointed me instead to De Lubach's work and said, maybe check this guy out and uh, and see what he has to say about how the church fathers read uh, scripture and how scripture functions in the church's worship, the liturgy. And so I was reading De Lubach. I wrote my master's thesis on him. Uh, Steve also invited me to read Lonergan, and I read Method and Theology uh, and then Insight with Steve uh, when I was in seminary, and they both just totally transformed my approach to theological reflection Mm-hmm. and uh, really gave me some resources for uh, helping to understand myself as a theologian and the mm-hmm. work of theology. So I had these two Jesuit influences, and then it came time for me to go on to doctoral work. And so the most obvious options for me to consider were Jesuit Catholic schools. Sure, uh, yeah. Marquette is where I did my PhD. It had uh, some of the best resources for studying de Lubach's work and Lonergan's work. It also had some key Protestant thinkers there who welcome Protestant thinkers like me uh, yeah. to study there. So D. Stephen Long is one of them. He's a Methodist uh, theologian who's at Southern Methodist University now. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Marquette. His whole worlds opened up in front of me there. I wanted to write a thesis on the theology of history there. That's actually what I wrote in my statement of purpose. I wanted to combine work from Lonergan and De Lubach to talk about a Christian understanding of God's work in history mm-hmm. uh, and also of historical process considered from a, a natural perspective. But when it came time to uh, shift gears after coursework, I realized that all the exam questions that I wanted to research and think about were related to scripture still. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it became clear to me that I was not going to get away from, and I shouldn't want to get away from my theological questions about the nature and purpose of the Bible. Mm. So I had all that background, all that formation in scripture, both my undergrad degree at a Bible college, my seminary work continued it. I got to take doctoral coursework in scripture, in addition to historical theology and systematics. And I was able to bring all that together. And um, Lonergan said that a doctoral thesis should be what X says about Y. Just pick a a figure and a topic that hasn't been done and do the work of research and uh, interpretation and history to basically say what the significance of, of X on Y is. And I didn't do that. I couldn't, with all the sorts of spiritual pressures that I felt myself, with everything that I had been able to do, with the ways that I'd been empowered by my undergrad and seminary uh, and then doctoral professors, it was clear to me that I had to do the project that I ended up doing. Uh, The book, Divine Scripture and Human Understanding, is a lightly revised version of my dissertation. I started writing it in 2013, and um, I actually got hired where I teach at Johnson University, uh, which Mm -hmm. is Johnson Bible College. Yeah, I've come back to my undergraduate institution in uh, the summer of 2015, and then I finished my dissertation, my first year full-time teaching at Johnson. Uh, And I was actually at Johnson University, Florida. Um, We have a campus in Kissimmee, Florida, Um, Mm -hmm. now at Johnson University, Tennessee, just south of Knoxville. So yeah, I finished up the dissertation, started to get acclimated to, to teaching, 
And uh, now I'm privileged to teach a variety of theological courses to students who are preparing for vocational ministry in church contexts and who are preparing for Christian service in, in all kinds of other fields. So Johnson has a specific focus on that. We actually have a massive Bible and theology core, which keeps me very busy and I think is, yeah. is pretty incredible. All of our students are required to take 33 hours as undergrads in, in wow. biblical studies and, and theology. And I get to do most of the theology. Uh, almost all the students either get to or have to, uh, <laughs> to, to to come through me. So I get to share a lot of the, the things that are in divine scripture in the classroom with them in the hopes of helping them to grow in their responsible and faithful handling of, of sacred scripture. So it is truly a gift to get to sort of apply all that work that I did in my dissertation now in the book. Pretty much every single day I step into the classroom. That's wonderful. That's great. Well, thank you for all that. It's really helpful. Um, and what a what a gift that you encountered Lonergan and Delubach in seminary. That's like that's very cool. I also went to Bible college and seminary, but I didn't encounter Delubach till much further on. And Lonergan is even more recent for me. So I'm uh, glad you encountered that in seminary and were able to put this book together. And I just want to say uh, the breadth that you've talked about in terms of your background is reflected in the book, which is something that makes it very attractive to me as a Bible scholar, that you've got so much depth and breadth in terms of theological reflection that's going on, but also you've got your eye on all kinds of concerns that matter specifically to Bible scholars. And your, your chapter on the materiality of Scripture and the text criticism is uh, not the kind of thing you always expect to encounter in a book on theology of the Bible. So that's like, uh, it was very helpful. I really enjoyed that very much. So what you just heard uh, about Drew's background, reflected right in the text. So I wanted to talk to you, uh, Joe, to start out uh, on the book, Divine Scripture and Human Understanding. So you, you sort of lay out the, the problem of Scripture today, and then you talk about a systematic theological treatment as a kind of response to that problem, and you sort of define what systematic theology is for you, and then you refer to these two leading lights that you've mentioned, De Lubach with his resourcement and his rodimento kind of approach, and then uh, Lonergan with his structure of human consciousness, method and theology kind of approach. And you let both of them influence parts of your project all the way through, even you know, broadly, it seems like to me, in terms of method, but even sometimes specifically when you talk about in your anthropology section, the human soul as being something we should capture it as an idea with de Lubach and his emphasis on this, but then you turn a lot again to fill out that content. Like what would that mean for us now? So very interesting use of both of those. So if you could just say a word like, yeah, about how do you conceive of the problem of scripture? What is systematic theology? Why systematic theology is a response? And then how are these two your leading lights? Yeah, thank you. That's a really nice overview of the various pieces that are there. And the book is a it's it's a very personal project for me, and I alluded to that just a little bit in my description of my formation. The problem of scripture, I think, is is everywhere evident publicly now in how different Christian communities interpret and use the text. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what kind, whether you're Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, non-Chalcedonian, Eastern, or any of the 
multiform varieties of, of Protestantism, of high and low varieties. You are committed to sacred scripture. A Christian is committed to sacred scripture, to receive it uh, as a gift from God that's useful for God's work in your life, in the life of the body of Christ, the Christian community. And, uh, and yet there's such a wide divergence of ways that scripture is used in such, such communities. And there's also, of course, the strange fact that different Christian communities use even different Bibles with different canonical contents, different books included. And the sort of pluralism can be kind of paralyzing. But any Christian uh, who's committed to Scripture, uh, I think that there's a call within that to articulate how it is that Christian faith can make sense of the situation and can, can make sense of scripture as this gift from God uh, that's useful for God's work in the world. And so in Lonergan's methodological resources, I found a way of, of going about addressing the challenge. Uh, systematic theology for Lonergan uh, is not apologetics. It's not any sort of defense of, of Christian faith. It's the work of faith-seeking understanding, to quote uh, something that Anselm, maybe go, going back even further to Augustine, uh, has given us. This idea that Christian commitment, Christian faith, Christian judgments about uh, reality, about God's work in the world, is foundational uh, and that understanding can and should ought to follow from uh, from faith. So there's this this problem of scripture. Uh, Lonergan provides a way of, of starting with Christian beliefs, Christian doctrines about what the Bible is and about what God intends uh, to do with it, uh, and then seeking understanding of how these things can possibly be so. And with De Lubach, he provided uh, a lot of a really moving uh, reflection on how pre-modern Christians basically approach scripture and what their expectations of it were. Some basic key doctrinal positions, I would say, uh, on what uh, what sacred scripture is from a Christian perspective in its relationship to a variety of other doctrinal concerns. So uh, Lonergan gave me the uh, the mode of approach, faith-seeking understanding, mm -hmm. uh, doctrines, express doctrines as truths, uh, then to, to be understood, uh, and, and De Lubach provided the, the doctrines. Um, and the doctrines are, are familiar um, to any, uh, any Christian who has um, uh, received some sort of catechesis concerning what Scripture is. Uh, it is the Word of God written. Uh, scripture is, is inspired in, uh, traditionally by appropriation. We see that as the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's the one who inspires the text. And Scripture is useful. Um, to quote uh, the Apostle Paul or somebody writing in his name under his authority in 2 Timothy 3, uh, all scripture is, uh, is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Um, the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So scripture is written word of God, scripture as uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, scripture is useful for God's work in the world. These provided the doctrines and uh, the book fleshes out uh, the contexts of those doctrines in the work of God in history, considering human beings as uh, as sort of the the place in which God does that work through Scripture. Uh, you, you noted the chapter on the soul uh, that that starts with De Lubach and then moves into Lonergan's theological anthropology, God's work in history, and the history of of human uh, subjects are the two contexts of these doctrines. And, uh, and then uh, the final chapter gives an account of the doctrines. In between those 
uh, there's there's this chapter on the material history of scripture uh, in which I draw on all that biblical studies work that I did on the text critical stuff on history of the canon, mm-hmm. uh, even on the history of the technology of the manuscripts uh, and um, codex technology shift from from scrolls or rolls to, to codices. Uh, that's also essential because that material history is the history of God giving scripture to God's people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we can't understand the Bible, can't understand sacred scripture if we don't know what it has been through the processes that are part of its material history. I, I should say, I should note, I left out a part of the story with reference to to the project. I wanted to sort of update the fourfold sense of scripture that De Lubach recovers in, in yeah. his four-volume work, Medieval Exegesis. Uh, So he argues that the church reads at the level of history or the letter at an allegorical level, which can sound scary to a lot of people, but really just has to do with how all of scripture refers to Christ and the church Mm -hmm. Um, at a moral level, which has to do with the transformation of the soul and the transformation of Christian community for Christian Mm -hmm. life as the body of Christ in the world. And then ultimately uh, on on the way spiritually towards the, the mystical uh, or the beatific vision, an, an anagogical interpretation. So I wanted to update that. And my original proposal had chapters on history and allegory in it. And um, it became clear to me that I couldn't talk about how to interpret scripture without first talking about what scripture is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the chapters on interpretation got cut and the chapters on what scripture is, its location in, in the history of Christian reflection and practice in the work of God, uh, in history of human subjects, its material history, all that stuff took on new shape and expanded. And that's what the book ended up being. So I do have in mind to write a sequel, God willing, on the the fourfold sense of scripture, recovering and updating fourfold sense of scripture. And only God knows if and when that will happen. But the book itself proved to be more than enough work for that time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. No, well, that's exciting. I, I love that. I ran a conference here uh, with some help with my colleagues, not this past fall, but fall before, I guess fall 2021, on what I called ecclesial exegesis and trying to marry pre-modern methods with modern historical critical methods in a positive way. And uh, we, we had a lot of people who came to talk about patristic exegesis, which was all very helpful, and fewer Bible scholars who came were interested in this. And so what you're talking about, especially with the second book, but what you've laid the foundation for this first book, something I'm very interested in. So I, I would welcome your second book. Yes. <laughs> uh, we uh, certainly are in need of something like that. It's a very fascinating thing that Dulubach has done and such a huge part of Christian reading for so many centuries. So it's great. Um, so thank you. That that was a very helpful discussion on, on Dulubach and, and Lonergan and uh, what your overall project is here. I wanted to ask you, um, I want to return to your concepts of inspiration and, and the usefulness of scripture. But before we do, I, I liked very much how you started with um, the interplay between what we think of as tradition and scripture. And how I think for most Christians, we think of scripture as a kind of ground zero that then tradition unpacks and helps define and gives what you talk about as like a objectified technical language for in a way that scripture lacks and the Holy Spirit is working through tradition to unveil and unfold what scripture contains. But also, even in chronology, some of this tradition that's important for all of this existed before any sort of canon of scripture and as the very means by which 
people were reading the Old Testament. You have a whole chapter on the rule of faith, which you talk about with Irenaeus, with uh, Origen, and with Augustine. And you point out that all of these people assume that in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, a Christian needs to have a hermeneutic, a hermeneutical starting point, I guess, in order to approach scripture. And you turn to sort of these rules of faith that are more simple, objectified expressions of the story of what God is doing with Christ and his people, and talk about that as a hermeneutical starting point, which you fully acknowledge at the same time are themselves historically conditioned sort of uh, that, that we have to interpret those and then not just repeat them, but kind of bring our horizon with the, that horizon as a part of um, our hermeneutical project. So it does get to be a, um, and you delineate all this very carefully, which I appreciate it, but a sort of like, we're here, we're approaching the history of the rule of faith in order to approach the history of scripture, which itself is sort of interpreted by the rule of faith. So yeah, can you speak to all of this relationship and, and how you're using it? Yeah, it's uh, it's challenging to, to think well about all these issues. When I was reading De Lubach's work, the first time that I worked through it, uh, I think I started with his Catholicism, Christ and the Common Destiny of, of Humanity, which is mm arguably his programmatic work, all the themes of his later work come out of it. He has a few chapters on theological understanding of history, uh, which which I noted is, is a major interest of mine. And I just found it so striking as I was reading his work to imagine what things would have been like for the early church, born, of course, with uh, the sacred scriptures of, of the ancient Jewish people in their hands, effectively, though not actually ready to hand. Christianity at its origins is, is uh, a sect within Judaism, mm -hmm. um, and, and the ancient Jewish scriptures, which we now know as the Old Testament, are always there, and they're always there throughout the New Testament and even before, but they are always, for the Christian community, interpreted as mystery that has been fulfilled in Christ's work. And so even though scripture is there at the beginning, it is itself only for those earliest Christians who are entirely Jews at the beginning of the church's history. Uh, it is only intelligible through its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, so I quote and allude to uh, the beginning of Ephesians all the time. On Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in the Greek, and uh, right within the super jam-packed, uh, theologically rich confession, we read, God has made known the mystery of his will, a plan for all times to reconcile all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth uh, in Christ. Uh, this is the, the conviction that the, that the earliest Christians have about God's work in history, and it shapes how they received the ancient Jewish scriptures. And it's the conviction out of which the authors of the New Testament write their books. Uh, it's the end of the age, so the, this language of newness is present throughout the, the New Testament, of uh, new covenant, uh, new command, uh, new, 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 new. It's, it's just all over the place in, in their testimony, and the newness is the incarnation and uh, the work of God pouring out his spirit on all flesh at Pentecost, uh, incorporating first Jewish people from all over the world, different languages, uh, into this new community, and then eventually Gentiles as well. This work in history, to use Irenaeus's language, the work of God through his two hands, the Son and Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. this is the orienting, shaping set of convictions uh, for Christian faith, for Christian being in the world. 
And this is this faith is determinative uh, for everything that the church does, for its morality, for its communal life, for its worship, and for its engagement with ancient scripture, and then eventually its engagement with the texts that we know as, as the New Testament. So what I think we see in the rule of faith, uh, which, as you note, is, is historically on the move itself, uh, is the church grappling with this and, and working out its confession, the ways in which the church should think and speak about God and God's relationship to the world. Uh, and that's all happening as early Christians are copying the books that we know as the Old Testament and interpreting them, preaching on them, using them in moral formation and catechesis. As the early church is writing and then copying uh, and then gathering together the books that we know as, as the New Testament, uh, passing them on, thinking about how they should be passed on technologically. Um, so Christian faith is earlier, uh, these Christian convictions about God's work in the world are earlier historically than the canon understood as a collection of texts, even if you're talking about uh, the ancient Jewish scriptures, because they're not all in the same place. There are disagreements within first century and even later Jewish tradition about which texts are scripture and which ones are not. So the church isn't born with a closed canon um, and and doesn't close the, the canon. Actually, really, it's it's quite difficult to different Christians from different traditions point to different times and different events for the close of the canon. Uh, but there's not actually really one that I think is is entirely satisfying, which doesn't mean that we can just add whatever we want to the Bible. Um, it, it does mean, though, that um, to receive any particular canon is to receive a set of traditional judgments about what belongs and what doesn't. Um, and it often means for, for most Christians to do so in a way that's not examined, uh, that's not historically conscious or, or, or self-aware. And so doing, doing that historical work to talk about the, the rule of faith and its development and the fact that uh, scripture is developing, uh, is being written, redacted, transmitted, brought together handed on at the same time is doing the responsible, I think, the responsible, faithful work of coming to understand scripture um, within Christian faith uh, as it is that God has given it, instead of imposing a set of judgments that, that come from ideas about how God should have acted or had to have acted or what the truthfulness of scripture demands us think about how God acted. Uh, we have to We have to think it uh, within this history in order to uh, to understand it, to understand it well. So there's a quotation that really gets at the heart of this, this challenge in Rudolf Voderholzer's uh, introduction to De Lubach's theology. Mm -hmm. uh, Voderholzer writes that the earliest Christians uh, died for their faith in Christ without ever having held a New Testament in their hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is true, not just of the New Testament, but also of of the Old Testament, of the ancient Jewish scriptures. And so this just shows, shows how Christian faith uh, decisively comes before scripture historically and also normatively. Um, and so then what you need is an account of God's work in the world, an account of God's uh, creative and redemptive work through Son and Holy Spirit 
uh, to orient yourself with respect to scripture, because scripture, as understood historically, exists within this history of God's creative and redemptive work, and so then can only be understood within, within this context. So that chapter, chapter two on the rule of faith, I've only come to start describing it this way relatively recently, but it it locates scripture in the context of early Christian faith. Chapter three in God's work mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. chapter four uh, locates it in the history of human culture, and then five is on its material history in those contexts, and six is on its uh, on Christian doctrines about it in the entire context of everything else that's come before. But that that second chapter is is pivotal because it, it works to try to get things in the right order, not just in terms of God's unfolding work in history through time, but in terms of how Christians should think about and prioritize different things within our faith commitments, within our convictions about God and God's work in history, uh, what what God has has done. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned these these next two chapters that stem from this approach um, that you you locate scripture both in terms of God's work in history and God's trinitarian unfolding of Himself and, and His ad extra work, but also like who God is in Trinity. Um, and then you also, after that, locate scripture in what it means to be human because it's written by humans. I take it. So you you sort of. Uh, you have these two locations which reflect the kind of thing we often say, which is that scripture is both divine and human like Christ, but you make that far more complex by describing what it means, you know, the, the rule of faith in terms of divine action, what it means to be human. Then I want to pick that up with your view of inspiration, which is not simply that, um, as you say throughout the book, that the everything we think as Christians was already out there now real, like for the scripture, and that you're you're careful to talk about the divine element of scripture as requiring at the same time current humans who are reading scripture. So uh, I loved how you unfolded that, and so I I won't uh, jump to that last point I'm making on inspiration, but you set up inspiration by talking about God's work and then talking about what it means to be human. Can you talk a little bit about those chapters? Yeah, so the the chapter on God's work in history uh, actually doesn't start with God's work in history. Uh, It starts with uh, trying to get straight uh, an adequate way to think about God and God's transcendence uh, Mm -hmm. from creation. It begins actually with the theology of creation, uh, not creation understood as something that God did sometime long in the past, uh, but instead um, God as uh, calling something into being that's not God and sustaining it in being. What God does in, in, in creating uh, isn't winding up the world uh, and then sort of standing back, uh, occasionally, you know, reaching down to intervene, uh, but but instead is, is um, uh, completely unnecessary. Uh, God doesn't need us or anything in, in creation. Uh, within a, a classical understanding of God's transcendence, uh, God exists of necessity. Uh, creation, on the other hand, is is wholly contingent. Um, we see, of course, contingency of creation all the time, but um, that there's a radical contingency to it within Christian faith, where uh, God doesn't need it, and yet God does call it in, into being and sustain it in being uh, at, at, at every moment. And so this actually gives us a way to talk about uh, 
God's freedom and also God's providential work in history and the real freedom of creatures, uh, the mm -hmm. real unfolding of, of the contingencies of creation. So there's not a competition between God and God's actions and, and human creatures. Uh, God's transcendence is, is non-contrastive. It's not competitive with creatures. Uh, this, this, I think, is the best, uh, best way of thinking about God in relation to the world uh, on offer in, in, in Christian tradition. It's not just Christian either. Um, th this idea of God's transcendence is also present uh, within Jewish reflection and, and Muslim reflection, as mm -hmm. uh, David Burrell has has noted and has explored. Uh, and it's also present in, in some other major religious traditions. Um, but this, this provides a way to talk about, again, God's action uh, as being uh, being real, being directed, being providential, um, and also the 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 sort of messiness uh, that that we have to acknowledge uh, as present in in uh, in the freedom and the contingency of our of our existence. Um, it also provides a way to, um, to 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 note how it is that God is not directly responsible for sin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we are the only ones who who have responsibility for. Uh, our failure to act in accordance with the good of our nature, uh, or using the good of our nature to do things that we know are not good, intrinsically stupid. Uh, God is responsible for creation, um, but is not responsible in sort of causing us to fail to act in those ways that we do in mm -hmm. sin. So then this provides a, a, a further resources for talking about uh, the difference of God's action in the world through the Son and the Holy Spirit through the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. What God does is, uh, is not a change in God, uh, but it is a change in the world. It's a change in, in what's, what is possible uh, for the world because uh, what's possible is no longer merely uh, natural freedom or, uh, in the case of us creatures, sin, uh, unnatural freedom. What's possible is uh, a healing of natural freedom and its elevation to share in the life and the work of God uh, through the incarnation, uh, through through Christ who is fully human and fully uh, divine, and through uh, the Spirit's work, uh, applying Christ's work throughout the world, throughout time. Um, so this is the most important, the broadest context in which Scripture is located. Uh, in, the, in the creative and redemptive work of God, through God's sustaining providential work in creation, and through the uh, the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, Scripture, the Bible, is an instrument within this work. Uh, so you noted that I talk about it, its humanity and also its its divinity. Um, I actually take take uh, great care, and 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 you know this. Uh, to uh, to make sure not to ascribe any actual divinity to to the text of, of yes. scripture. It's it's not a fourth person <laughs> of the Trinity, yeah. um, and it's and it's not um, even though we use the language of Word of God written appropriately of it, uh, it's not the incarnate Word. Yes. Um, you know, Scripture itself speaks of the Word of God in, in a variety of different ways, uh, but the Word of God that's fundamental is the second person of the Trinity, um, and the text is an instrument that that mediates to us the second person of the Trinity. Scripture is, it has an intrinsic relationship to 
uh, Christ, to, re to revealing Christ, to teaching us about Christ, but it is not Jesus himself. There are a number of figures in, in the history of Christian reflection who are a lot bolder in how they connect such things. Origen is, is one of them. I don't go there with him. I actually remain sort of more Protestant in my approach. John Webster, who is a, a Reformed theologian who's done a ton of work on the theological interpretation of Scripture, he no longer sees through a mirror darkly. He's uh, He's gone on to his reward, but he, mm. uh, he writes in his book, Holy Scripture, a dogmatic sketch, uh, that no divine properties ought to be ascribed to the text. Um, it is it is an instrument. It is a, a gift, a divinely given gift through which God has chosen um, to give God's self to us. But but it is it's it's an instrument. It's not a, a person of the Trinity. Um, and, and so even though I, I draw on his thought, a Protestant's thought there for that, um, part of the reason why I'm so insistent on that is that I think that there is um, a real risk within a lot of Bible centric Protestant traditions of uh of bibliolatry yeah um i i mean uh i i know a lot of churches uh whose first three articles of faith are belief in god jesus and the holy bible yeah. um and no person <laughs> in those churches is baptized in the name of god jesus and the holy bible yeah uh, they're baptized <laughs> in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit Mm -hmm. um but these trinities are not the same um yeah. <laughs> and it's it's very important to get the relations uh right so first locate scripture in, in the work of god in history well it's also a holy human work mm -hmm. um so the, the insights of modern biblical criticism are not even though there's constant uh, revision constant uh further insights new understandings that that happen uh, within biblical scholarship, there are things that we have learned through paying attention to the concrete particularity of the text mm -hmm. that show us its its humanity through mm -hmm. and through. And if people aren't prepared to recognize that in the Bibles that they hold in their hands, um, you you have to whenever you consider the history of the transmission of of Scripture. Um, yes, uh, be, be, it's just unavoidable. Uh, having a Bible on our shelf ready to hand hides from us the fact that uh, these texts are transmitted by hand, which is what manuscript literally means, uh, for 1,500 years, um, mm -hmm. at the very least, the New Testament, and for considerably longer than that. And there's also oral transmission, and uh, this is human through and through. That doesn't mean that God uh, cannot be active in these processes and hasn't superintended them, um, the, the approach to God's providential work I articulate in chapter three makes it so we can say both of these things together. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but then this requires us to give attention to what humans, human beings are in mm -hmm. history, um, uh, our capacities for self-transcendence, our capacities for being able to have the, the possibility of being able to write um, under God's inspiration, the texts uh, for those uh, authors, the original human authors, and uh, the capacities to to pass them on, to to hand the texts on, uh, to translate the texts, uh, to uh, inventively come up with new technological means of translating them, uh, to ornament them brilliantly, beautifully with uh, with incredible uh, artwork, um, uh, to to think about them in the context of faith with the the nomina sacra, which is a system of 
abbreviations of of the names of God and the work of God that show up in ancient uh, manuscripts. Uh, human beings had have done all of this, have mm-hmm. have been doing all of this all along, and so we need an account of human beings that that can make sense of this. And human beings are always the ones receiving the text and always the ones who receive it with the possibility of it being a means to our transformation into Christ-likeness. So we don't just need an account of what humanity is in in the composition and redaction and transmission, translation and handing on of the text. We need it to to talk about ourselves as recipients, uh, whoever we are in whatever church ecclesial community we are. uh, What are we? Um, that we can receive these texts attentively and intelligently and reasonably and responsibly and faithfully that God can work in us through them. So chapter four spells out a theological and philosophical anthropology uh, to provide a a tool for thinking about uh, the humanity behind the texts of scripture, uh, through the texts of scripture, evident in scripture, uh, and our own humanity is as capable of receiving what God intends for us through the texts now uh, and any time. Anytime anyone has received what God uh, has revealed, what God has said, um, they, they've done so as, as they are, as the human mm-hmm. being they are. Uh, so, so chapter four uh, provides, I think, the most powerful, it's the most powerful approach to theological and philosophical anthropology that I'm familiar with. And it, not my work, uh, but what I've received from, from Lonergan um, mm-hmm. and, and from some of his, um, uh, some of his students uh, to, to give an account for what's valuable in the pre-modern approach to scripture as useful for soul craft and for the formation of the body of Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. To give an account for what's useful in modern approaches to scripture that actually deal with a historical variegation present in the text and really help us to measure up to the difference uh, and the strangeness of the humanity that's present in it and in its transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also can account for um, the the plurality of readers receiving the text uh, with with the relative legitimacy of all of our cultures. Every human culture that is, is is a mixture of authenticity and inauthenticity of mm-hmm. natural mm-hmm. human goodness and sinfulness. And if we believe that God intends God's work universally, potentially even grace is present uh, cross-culturally. Lonergan was yeah. prepared to see even that. And um, and so that his anthropology provides a way of, of acknowledging that there can be legitimately plural interpretations of of scripture, um, which is absolutely essential for the global church, uh, yeah. for for a church that's historically conscious that the way that we do things, wherever we are in whatever corner of Christianity we're in, is not the same way that everybody has done things all the time. We need a way to both affirm and critically reflect on our doing as we in, engage scripture. Uh, to, to be able to uh, envision a uh, a church worshiping beneath the throne of the Lamb in in um, in the language of of the apocalypse of, of John, uh, that's composed of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Um, so I think that the approach to theological anthropology that's there in chapter four um, can affirm these pre-modern, modern, and post-modern insights. Um, mm-hmm. Provide a way to. Uh, also critique things that are 
uh, characteristically absent in those approaches as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then that provides the human context of scripture. So those things, uh, those ways of locating the text in its habitats, uh, divine yeah. and, and human are, uh, are I think, uh, essential work so that we can take responsibility for um, what we're doing with respect to God's work and with respect to what we are. Um, not be naive about our humanity, about the subjective commitment that's involved in interpretation, but actually take responsibility for, for these things. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's wonderful, which is, I, I, I hear you say in the latter point, that's not that you can't evaluate the authenticity in Lonergan's words or the um, accuracy, the intelligence, the reasonableness, the responsibility inherent in certain plural approaches, right? You might say like, okay, this approach I think fails in this level, succeeds yeah. on this level. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of our responsibility as people within our own subjectivities to, to do that. Um, but it's to say, we don't have to pick one team, either whether it's historical, critical, or theological, or postmodern, so an intellectual team, or like, here's how I'm reading this in Western New York, and here's how my friend is reading it in Nicaragua. We can't evaluate either of those things, but it's more that we don't need to, uh, to only imagine that our judgment is the objective one. Is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. Um, Lonergan contrasts a classicist approach to culture with an empirical mm -hmm. uh, or historical approach to culture. In a classicist approach to culture, um, there's only one culture, and everything else is uh, is either a pale imitation or barbarism. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of it's barbarism. Uh, I'm sure you know this it has to do with beardedness, uh, which is, yeah. which is funny, uh, a couple of bearded both, guys here. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, both, we both have that barbarism going on. That's right. Um, but but this is simply inadequate uh, as an approach to culture for for a Christian. Um, who's committed to affirming that vision that, that I just mentioned from, from Revelation chapter 7. Uh, if people are worshiping from every tribe, tongue, or nation, uh, God has not made us unicultural, uh, mm -hmm. but, but instead there, there's an affirmation and, and a remembrance of, of the legitimacy, the relative legitimacy and authenticity in any cultural uh, perspective, in any corner of, of, of the Christian world. Um, so... Uh, but but as I noted, um, authenticity is um, you know it's it's a high it's a high bar, and and mm -hmm. we already uh, always are only relatively authentic. Um, uh, Jesus has not done uh, with with any of us. Uh, even even the saints wouldn't wouldn't say uh, that that Jesus was done working on them. Um, and uh, and so there's the matter of of self criticism self. Uh, critical reflection mm -hmm. uh, that that this approach uh, invites and expects as well. Uh, if sin is has the uh, pervasive effects that that we see the, the witness of Scripture kind of um, revealing to us, then we should expect uh, to find not just authenticity but also inauthenticity in in every in every culture. Mm -hmm. um, the empirical approach to culture is is able to to recognize this. Uh, to, to recognize there are as many cultures as there have ever been social groups that have existed in, in world history and that exist currently, uh, and that they all come from people, uh, and that people are good by nature, though profoundly, uh, pervasively, negatively impacted by sin, 
and potentially and possibly uh, we could even expect actually impacted by the grace of God. Um, that this provides us a way to avoid uh, all manner of things that we know are bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it really would be better if if Christians would would do that. The imposition of of uh, I mean, if of course the the ugliest examples of this, um, at least the ones that are that are um, easily considered or at, at hand for us are um, histories of of colonialism uh, mm-hmm. and the history of of shadow slavery in, uh, in the United States of America and, and elsewhere, and um, ways in which uh, Christians felt that their uh, that their faith permitted them to dehumanize, um, to deny the dignity of, of other other persons. Uh, that that has nothing to do with uh, with the work of God in history, with what God intends, with God's redemptive work in the world. And the anthropology that I that I try to articulate in chapter four um, is one that uh, affirms that that sort of history or those histories are are blasphemous. Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course, scripture has been utilized uh, in those histories. It's been employed. It's been mm-hmm. interpreted uh, in the service of violence and and um, uh, in the service of uh, denying the dignity of of other persons created in the image and likeness of God. So I mentioned my goal at the beginning of my educational career to prevent uh, people from getting scripture wrong. Like that, that's that's been that's been something uh, in the background all, all along. Is um, man, it, I just don't think it's necessary uh, to use scripture in the way these horrific ways that it's been used. Uh, how how is it that we can receive it? Um, and not do that. Um, I mean, it's not very hard for me to not do those things, but like, what should I say about it uh, to to provide the church with uh, resources for being able to clearly uh, condemn these, these uses of scripture as blasphemous, as not what God wants, as outside of of the faith of of the church, uh, outside of, of what God intends in history and, and inhumane, um, so they don't measure up to what I what I present in chapters two, three, or or four at all. I uh, that work uh, I, I don't spell all those implications out in in those chapters, but in the years since I wrote the book, it's uh, it's it's become more and more evident to me that I need to make make those things explicit. Um, so that's great. I really appreciate that. That's that's very helpful. And- and I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear those explicit um, implications uh, brought out. Uh, and I, explicit implications, but the contrary. But anyway, the explicit <laughs> to, to hear to, make, to hear the implications made explicit. Um, and uh, the other thing is, um, in line with this, you you end up talking about after doing all this work of theological reflection, of anthropological reflection, of cultural, what it means to be, to be a culture and how to uh, think within those things, talk about self-transcendence along the lines of both a sort of consciousness, um, like a Kantian style transcendence, but also the trend in, transcendentals, medieval transcendentals, which I, I love this Lonergan thing that he does there. <laughs> he makes the tra- medieval transcendentals a sort of Kantian transcendentals at the same time. Um, he would say he wasn't making, well, he 
he uh, he gets painted as Kantian often, um, but he what he was doing with the transcendentals, he would say was decidedly not Kantian. Okay, okay, good. Uh, I stand correct on that. I'm uh, um, that's good to know. Oh, that's interesting to know. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, Giovanni Sala, a Italian scholar who's who uh, has written extensively on Lonergan's relationship to Kant. So um, okay. I'm and I'm out of my depth on those on those philosophical points. But if when Lonergan says he's not Kantian and he said it repeatedly, I'm inclined to believe that he knows what he's absolutely. Talking about, so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair enough. And uh, so I stand corrected. I am also out of my depth on those questions. So. Uh, uh, I was just responding to what, what it sounded like, but um, that is, uh, this leads you then to your final chapter where you reflect on the doctrines of scripture, some of the traditional doctrines and how you would think about them. And I was um, very interested in your approach to inspiration and, I, and, and, and then also your approach to the usefulness of scripture. Um, and I, I wanted to know yeah, if you would talk a little bit about those two things. Yeah, so inspiration uh, is is super hard to think about. I mean, historically, uh, Christians have have um, I think have often risked and even explicitly slid into a kind of uh, uh, contrastive uh, way of thinking about divine and human agency in the process. That God uh, actually, like some of the church fathers, speak about God. Um, just playing the human authors as if, as if they were pass, completely passive instruments. Mm -hmm. And of course, modern biblical scholarship shows us that that's just simply not, it, it's just not a tenable way of, of thinking about things. Um, so how, how, <laughs> how can you think about a transcendent God, not in competition with creaturely causes, superintending the processes of inspiration. That's what I tried to do. That's a challenge that's, I don't feel like I've uh, solved it decisively. Um, but uh, I, I uh, am at least at this point, uh, satisfied, relatively satisfied with what, with the perspective that I've come up with. Uh, so I see inspiration. I actually frame the question of inspiration in terms of three key texts uh, mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Two of them get cited all the time. Uh, one of them I've already mentioned is, is in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 14 to, to 17, especially 16 and 17. Um, all scripture is God-breathed and useful mm -hmm. for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Uh, seldom quoted are the, the two preceding verses uh, wherein uh, we, we, we read uh, that scripture is actually uh, able to make one wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. People divorce inspiration and usefulness from wisdom for salvation in Christ Jesus, I think very often in their citation of that text. But uh, th this, this text uh, ascribes, uh, ascribes scripture to divine initiative. God is the one who, who does it. Um, so, but, but in the view of uh, non-contrasted transcendence and God's relationship to creation that I mentioned earlier, uh, God's the one who does everything mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. for sin. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to answer uh, Paul's question in the Corinthian correspondence, what do you have that you've not re received? Uh, the answer is, is nothing. Everything yeah. that we have, <laughs> everything that we are comes from God at, at every moment. Um, and so scripture is not somehow 
an exception to that. Um, but it is it 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 is its own particular set self. Uh, it is its own its own set of particularities. It is its own history. Actually, that's that's how I've been uh, in in uh, in subsequent um, articles. I've been uh, starting to refer to uh, the Bible or Scripture as the history of Scripture or as the history of the Bible. Um, this is what God has given. This is what God has given. The key accent of that text is on its usefulness for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, for making one wise for, for salvation, for faith in Christ Jesus. And so this, uh, this entire history of the text, mm -hmm. both all that we know about it and all that we don't, mm -hmm. is given in the service of this this other thing uh it's it's usefulness for these purposes which are constrained by faith in saving faith in christ jesus mm -hmm. um so um that that i think is is what we can say um a, a, about uh god's god's special work with these particular texts we can't i don't think say anything further uh than that um because of the immense generic variety that we find in scripture uh, because of its humanity. Uh, it, it's just a matter of God setting apart this history for the sake of this work. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what the inspiration of scripture is. Um, and, um, but there, there, there are other angles to, to, to talk about uh, the, 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 the other text uh, that, or the next text that often gets cited uh, is, is from second Peter chapter one, Mm -hmm. um where uh wherein just paraphrasing um uh the petrine author writes that god carried along the prophets in what they said mm -hmm. uh, so it's not just the text that's set apart it's that god is actually working antecedent to the the text the textualization mm -hmm. the process of writing in the in the persons mm -hmm. uh that that are responsible for for uh for this so um so you'll you'll see uh, a lot of reflection on inspiration as either textual or or human authorial. Mm -hmm. um, I think both I think both are included. Um, but uh, again, God's agency with respect to the human authors is not competitive. Mm -hmm. So they're they're real authors, and their personality, uh, everything of themselves is is actually evident in their authoring. Um, you know, uh, uh, John doesn't write the same way as Paul. I mean, you consider the four evangelists, they're so, so drastically different in their, uh, in the sort of personality, uh, that, that, that you can see reflected in the text. God doesn't override that. Um, but God is, uh, is, is active in that work to set apart the, the writings, the texts for the work of, of uh making one wise for salvation in Christ Jesus and the useful things that are are needed in in that process. And finally, uh the last text that I make reference to is not one that is uh that is engaged in discussions of inspiration. Uh and that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul talks about how the letter kills uh but the spirit gives life. Mm -hmm. Um Paul uh, effectively says that it's impossible to understand the letter apart from the spirit. 
Uh, and that's a that's a that understanding is a subjective matter that happens in the one receiving, engaging the text, whether it's an individual or the community of the body of Christ. Um, the Spirit's work relative to the text of Scripture uh, isn't just before it in its author, human authors or in the words. Uh, it, it's the same Spirit at work in the body of Christ um, uh, to, uh, to, to bring about uh, the mind of Christ in, in Christ's body, individual and, and collective. Uh, so uh, some folks put this, give this a different doctrinal name. They call it illumination as distinct from inspiration, sort of to save the ob objectivity of the inspiration of the text. But um, I argue, and I, I just don't think this is uh, escapable, um, there's no non-subjective engagement with the text. Uh, no, and nobody would want to engage the text in an inattentive, unintelligent, unreasonable, irresponsible, unfaithful way. Um, so we need to, I think we need to see inspiration actually extending all the way through the process of, of uh, attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible, and faithful engagement, loving engagement with the text happening in the body of Christ. Uh, and when the church faithlessly utilizes the text, uh, it puts itself outside of the work of the spirit in history. And so uh, I actually situate all these considerations uh, back with reference to chapter three um, within the, the, the overall mission of the, of the Holy Spirit in history. If we can speak of inspiration as something by appropriation that the spirit does, then we probably need to know what the spirit is up to, um, to, to sort of set our expectations for, for what inspiration might mean and what it might be for. And the spirit is in the business of flooding our hearts with the love of God. The spirit is in the business of, of making it so we can call out uh, to God uh, as father, uh, as adopted sons and daughters. The spirit is in the business of convicting us of sin uh, the Spirit is in the business of bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in us. And so um, these considerations of the Spirit's work in the authors, uh, in the text itself, or relative to the text itself, and in, in uh, subjects receiving the text, the community of the body of Christ receiving the text, they all are situated within this this broader work of of the spirit who's the spirit of sonship and daughtership is the spirit of christ the spirit who is uh one with the father and with the son who is uh doing god's creative and redemptive work which has this shape um that that um it's unsatisfying to somebody who wants a sort of idea of the mechanics of inspiration um but i just don't think that we're permitted to have to have any sort of idea like that. And I think that the, the again, that, be, that best idea about the non-contrastive relationship between God's work and uh, creaturely freedom, I think it actually rules out any sort of mechanical notion of inspiration. It, it just doesn't make sense. But that doesn't mean we, <laughs> we're out to sea. We have all kinds of these other resources that really can frame how we think about inspiration, um, I think, uh, very well. Again, my perspective is certainly not the last word on su such issues, but it is one approach that makes space for um, for some ancient ideas about how inspiration 
um, works in the reading and hearing of the text in the present, and that can make sense of those modern and postmodern concerns in the the uh, historical or empirical view of culture that I that I've argued for. Uh, yeah, that that's that's beautiful. You know, I was just talking with a friend or an acquaintance last week about the inspiration of scripture or the scripture's existence being con- sort of constitutively part of the spirit's mission. You're, you're talking about in terms of both hands here, but uh, in Irenaeus's term. But and he was saying to me that he felt that the the diversity and the concrete particularity of scripture is what you expect from the spirit's work like, uh, which is even the judgment about the spirit some of the ones you were describing and then the, the idea of the gifts of the spirits being variegated and specific and concrete and building together but certainly diverse that you would expect to find that in um, aspects of our understanding of scripture which you're pushing even further to say, not just in the the fact of what we call scripture, the, the histories of scripture, the whole process of scripture, but also in the way that we read and understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Very nice. So I have one final question for you, Joe, um, that is turning from the book to its, its practical use. You've been teaching this book and its ideas for a long time. And I imagine that you sometimes occasionally get a student who comes in with a very strong view of like, okay, the um, everything I think about God and Jesus has to be in the scripture very clearly and technically defined. And also every single thing in scripture I'm encountering is historically real and this sort of like empirical evidence-based modern culturally historically real kind of way, not allegorically or Christologically, but like concretely. And that views much of what you're saying is a sort of invitation into some sort of heretical um, approach. Uh, I'm guessing you've encountered this from time to time. <laughs> to be honest, uh, I haven't. Oh, you but, haven't? Oh, well, that's oh, amazing. <laughs> I, I, I do have, I, I mean, I do know that I have students who have these perspectives. Yeah. Um, but um when I so I don't actually teach the whole book in in any in any course, you know, um, uh, the way our curriculum works, um, I teach a, a freshman level orientation to theology, uh, and then a sophomore level uh, theological anthropology course, and also mm-hmm. there's a sophomore level biblical interpretation course, and I think that I actually kind of in orientation to theology, I I sort of uh, am able to do some things right near the beginning of that class that um, forestall co- controversy. Um, and I'm not sure how I came up with these ways of doing things, um, but they but they work out. Um, you know, I, I teach in a, in a pretty Socratic way through a number of, of different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we have to focus, um, I think that I do this, uh, both because of where I'm located and because I'm a Christian, a uh, Christian theologian, uh, I do it with reference to the to the concrete particularity of Scripture, uh, yeah. and I don't uh, I don't challenge students with the results of modern biblical criticism. I challenge students with questions about how to understand the text. Yeah, uh, and 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 the first half of the semester, 
um, we uh, we explore the church's developing uh, ways of faithfully talking about God as as triune. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk to them about how you know I I, I mentioned to them something that I've mentioned. Uh, many many churches, Bible centric churches, practically have a Trinity that's God, Jesus, and the Holy God. Bible, yeah. and they know that. And they, when they think about it, they realize, oh, this is a this is a big problem. This is a big problem. Right? Some of them might not be totally ready to accept that the Holy Spirit is a person, um, because they're they're biblicist and and uh, Trinitarian theology and its reflection on the Holy Spirit doesn't come to very clearly articulate that the Spirit is a person until the end of the third uh, end of the fourth century, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, but they know. Oh, I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? It's right there in Matthew in the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to deal with this, and um, I, um, I, I, I bring up other texts um, that are instrumental in the church's developing reflection on the Trinity. First uh, Corinthians eight six, where Paul or somebody earlier than him uh, modifies the Shema. The mm-hmm. most important confession in Jewish faith. Like, can somebody do that? Can a, can a Jewish person do that? Well, Paul does, and he sticks Jesus right in there. Or somebody even before Paul did that. And this is alarming, and we we have to make sense of this. And I can show how that um, how that question and that challenge moves the church into basically affirming the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son. Um, if all things are uh, from and to and for the Father, but they're also through the Son, then the Son can't be a thing among things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just by dealing with these texts, um, I'm, a- I'm able to, to I think, move them to, to recognize the legitimacy of, of these sorts of considerations. So, and then in, in biblical interpretation, you know, I, I tell them, I took the Bible for granted whenever I came here. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that there were problems with interpretation, uh, but I memorized a bunch of it and I was going to get a fix it. So I, you know, I revealed my, my own naivete, um, yeah. that, you know, say, you know, you probably should expect that you might have some similar ideas. I actually say you probably better off than, than I am. You guys probably think better about this stuff than I did. Um, but we look at the footnotes that have always been there in their Bibles on, on textual variants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we talk about the, the material history of scripture. And I say, I didn't sneak into your room late at, at night and, and put these things in your Bibles. They've always been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the challenge is you, you just haven't ever paid attention to them. Uh, nobody has ever forced you to pay attention to them, but you know that this, that this is here and that this is part of, of scripture as you received it. And mm-hmm. you're responsible for for dealing with this, and uh, so I, I've I've um, I've managed to develop some ways to to kind of come into these challenges and questions um, that uh, that teach that work. Um, so students who've had me for those experiences, uh, they they don't come in defensive. I mean, what are they going to do? Say that footnote's not in my Bible, or mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. really isn't a question. Um, you know, the, the, uh, they, and they know my, my care 
for them and they know my care for for scripture and they know uh you know i tell them my life verse uh is 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 james 3 1 not many of you should be teachers those who teach will be judged with greater strictness this this is my vocation and i have the greatest job in the world and it keeps me up at night because i have to try to think about how to tell the truth constantly um uh to help you to grow in your faith uh into a mature faith and you too are are christian leaders uh, just by coming to a place like this, you 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 uh, uh, maybe have received some sort of call by uh, from God, or you think that ministry is what you should be doing, and so you have to think about this and take responsibility for this too. And um, it's just just a variety of of uh, of different strategies, things that I've thought a long a long time about, and that I've practiced, and some things I've just sort of stumbled into. Um, but but they've made it so thus far I I don't um, I, I mean I don't really have challenges like like that I have challenges great. sometimes with people who aren't aren't my students, um, but uh, I'm uh, I have some some <laughs> I I take this kind of as sort of a gift in certain ways, uh, but I have some social uh, unawareness uh, whenever <laughs> somebody's being being mean to me or attacking me my wife has had to pull me out of uh at least a couple conversations where i wasn't aware that i was uh i was i was being attacked basically um <laughs> and um and even even that stuff happens very rarely i mean you know i uh i i do this work uh not not because it pays the bills uh, it does yes. but not not because uh, I get a kick out of it, but uh, because um, just like with the book, uh, be- because I, in, in a certain respect, don't don't really feel like I had a choice, but not in a negative way. Like mm-hmm. this is what I have have received from God as as my vocation to do. That's great. That's beautiful. Well, yeah. that's. Uh, I was going to ask like, how you deal with uh, people who have a hard time with these concepts. It seems like you. Or a step ahead of that question, your <clears throat> your approach um, is already bringing them in in a way that uh, is uh, accompanies their journey. So is that that I feel like this is a fairly universal experience of uh, the Bible teachers have, um, people talking about the Bible have. But uh, I'm, I'm very inspired by your approach. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you, Joe. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, and again, for those listening, the book is Divine Scripture and Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible by Joseph K. Gordon. And it is a um, out of Notre Dame Press uh, with the Reading the Scriptures series with Gary Anderson, Matthew Levering, and Robert Lewis Wilkin. And um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's well worth picking up, well worth studying. And uh, I look forward also to the book that's going to come for, uh, next. So Now, there's a few others that I've got to that I'm contractually obligated to write first and then okay, okay. <laughs> at least one other that I don't have a contract for that, that, um, uh, will come before it. So don't uh, hold your breath. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can pray about well, it I, if you, if I do look forward to it in the, the distant yeah. future. Yeah. yeah. Thank you again. Yep. Thank you so much, Charles. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry is a Catholic graduate school in Rochester, New York. We offer courses in Rochester, Albany, and Buffalo, New York, as well as Allentown, Pennsylvania, and online from anywhere in the world. 
Our master's degrees and certificates focus on theological studies, Catholic philosophy, biblical studies, pastoral studies, bioethics, and evangelization. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful, dark, restorative Lent. <laughs>